Start planning today and take that trip you've always wanted to. Every adventure gives you the opportunity to experience something new. Traveling will pay tenfold what you pay to actually do it. This is Inspire Beyond Borders, and we're here to help you see the world. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Inspire Beyond Borders. This week, we'll be talking with Rebecca. She's a small business owner who works in interior design. She traveled to France in 2019 and spent 24 days exploring all parts of the country. Rebecca, how are you today? I'm doing marvelously. Thank you. Awesome. And of course, we have with us James. James, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well. How about you, Aaron? I'm doing well. It's a beautiful day here in New York. You couldn't ask for anything better. So, Rebecca, was this your first time in France? No, this was my third time in France. My first time was my honeymoon to my first husband, um, which was bicycling from Brussels to Paris. And I don't like bikes, so that's an adventure on its own. And then my second time was with my new, my now husband. We, we spent a Christmas there, Christmas and a New Year's. That was in 2016 in Paris. So your first trip had basically taken all those expectations that I was going to ask you about. And did you have any changed expectations going back to France in 2019? Not not necessarily changed expectations, but, you know, going as a barely 20-year-old and then going as a very settled over 40-year-old, your your own expectations or your own understanding of the world is very different. So, um, and also just owning the trip, right? So when I went for the first trip, my first husband was the one who loved all things, all things France, and he was the one that spoke some French. I didn't speak a word of French. And so I, wasn't, I didn't feel as in charge of that trip. This trip, um, I was completely in charge of planning it for my husband and I. And I, we also, it's very different because we're going with this mindset of we might live here someday because we want to move to, to Paris for some reasons. And so, you know, I'm going into it, not just with this wanting to do an adventure, but also I'm in charge of the budget. I'm in charge of like the French people not hating me. Um, you know, so I wanted to dress the part. I needed to understand at least how to say hello. So I guess the expectations I had of myself were very different compared to the first trip rather than the expectations I had of the country. Actually, that's a very good point. I, I like that because trying to assimilate to the culture you're visiting is always a plus. And I feel like the people who live there really take that to heart and welcome you a lot better. I would say, especially France, you know, you're saying, what do I expect of France? I think that they are a country that really has a lot of pride in their own language and, and a lot of pride in their own country and thinks very highly of themselves and not necessarily as highly of Americans. And so I felt like if I wanted the best experience I could have, I needed to meet them where they were at and going to their country, not, you know, they're not coming to mine. And so a lot of the guests we have on, usually it's a week, maybe a week and a half, they go to a certain place. You've got 24 days. You said you did all the planning. How do you go about planning such a long trip and making sure that you're seeing what you want to see and getting everything in order? Yes, um, it is a challenge, actually. We've taken, so we've been married for seven years, and we have taken a month-long trip most of those years. 
um, because it's very, very important to us. And as you said earlier, I'm a small business owner and so is he. So the first trick to all of this is, you know, some people think, oh, you own your own small business. That means you're in charge of your own schedule, which is true. But also when you own your own small business, there's nobody else to rely on. Like if you leave your business, like what's supposed to happen? So the trick for us is buying the plane tickets. We buy our plane, we, we decide on our next trip and we buy our plane tickets like nine months in advance because when the trip comes around, we're still going to be too busy to travel. Like that's just not going to change. So just by putting, by making the reservations, buying the, the tickets, that's what makes it even possible for us to travel because we're, because I'm not going to waste my money. I'm not going to forego the trip. I simply have to make it work. So that's step number one is, dreaming of our next trip, which we usually do at the end of our previous trip so that we're not so sad about coming home. And then, um, you know, I usually start with the usual suspects, like, okay, what are the main things people would want to see in whatever country we're going to? And then I filter that through what we like. So we know we, we do want to, we have huge FOMO. So the first time we visit any country, we're going to do all the tourist things. Because like when we went to Italy, Sure, the Leaning Tower of Pisa was basically just a, a, a potty break for me. I had a pee. I got to Pisa. I did it. I saw the thing. I'm like, yay. I took the picture of me holding it up or him holding it up. And then we were done. But we don't want to miss those things because they're iconic and they are amazing, like the Eiffel Tower. But I know that we like the surprises. We like the small villages. So once I identify some of the main tourist points we want to hit, then I start looking around the region and going, what what does it look like? What are the Airbnbs in the area? What kind of experience can I have in the smaller moments, not just when I'm seeing this iconic thing? Um, and then we try to have a rule of staying at least three nights anywhere we go so that we have at least one full day, if not two full days, everywhere we're going because we do a lot of uh, traveling between spots and we need to like, you know, have a little downtime. We've got to do a little bit of laundry and see the things. I say we try because there's so much to see and we tend to go sometimes shorter than we want to in each spot. So you, you spell that out. You pick your tourist spots, you pick your, your in-between moments, you pick where you're going to stay and how long you're going to stay there, and then you just do the math. So what's on your agenda for 2020 then? Any trips this year or are you taking an off year because of COVID? COVID definitely got in our way. We should have been in Paris in September because, as I said, we're trying to move there. So we want to go over and kind of get a sense of some of the neighborhoods and, like, you know, start developing some relationships. But COVID, you know, we can't leave our country. So our first trip together back when we were dating, we hadn't been dating, I swear to you, like six weeks. <laughs> we took a three-week road trip from Maine to Florida and we finished at Disneyland. So... We found out that A, we travel well together. <laughs> That's a test. And B, we, it is a test. I mean, it could have gone either way. <laughs> um, I learned how much he loves driving, and I fall asleep when driving long distances. So that was a good partnership. Um, so this year, since we couldn't leave the borders, we did take a two-week road trip from Seattle over to Georgia and then looped back again through Yellowstone because we hadn't seen our family because of COVID. So that was our opportunity to both fit in a trip and see family in a way that minimizes social contact and uh, still get a, get the traveling out of our system. I'll, I will be completely honest with you. We are also binge watching um, The Amazing Race. We started at season one with COVID. Yes. I think we're on season 15 right now. And that has so helped me with my non-traveling year. So you're a great example of what we're trying to 
to really push people into doing. I, I feel like a lot of people are afraid of travel because one, they've never done it. Two, they have so much on their plate that they feel that they can't. And you're that great example where you own your own business, your husband owns his own business, and you just make it work. You take that trip uh-huh. anyway. So besides the planning, how do you handle being away for this extended period while owning a small business? Yeah, um, I will say, first of all, that it's totally hard, <laughs> but that it's actually one of the best ways to grow your business because, or at least that's what both my husband and I have found. It is so hard to let go of control when you own your own small business. Um, and so if, if we're around, if I'm around, it's really easy for me to keep doing all the things. But, you know, my husband and I identified really early on that travel was a really high value for us. So we, we knew that we had to do whatever it took to make that happen for us in our relationship. And that meant that I had to take these little leaps of faith every time we would take a trip. Now, the first trip was actually easy because our first trip together was officially our honeymoon. And people are so forgiving when it's your honeymoon. Like, oh, of course you're going to disappear and go do a honeymoon and everybody's excited for you. So that kind of made that first big trip um, a little easier because everybody was like so on board and they were excited for us. And with each trip that we've taken, it's given us the opportunity to delegate a little bit more and experience. With, okay, guys, you have the reins because we both have employees. You guys have the reins. You know how to get a hold of us. You know, the crap hits the fan. <laughs> um, but I, I very intentionally try to, to stay offline and not micromanage my team. And they have always stepped up. And every single time I leave, I come back to a stronger company and I come back refreshed and able to go, you know, like, okay, well, then let's, what's the next level? What are we going to do next? So I don't want to minimize how terrifying it is, but when you have team members that you've chosen to hire, the best thing you can do is trust them and see what they can do. What's the worst that can happen? It's unlikely they're literally going to ruin your company in a week or two weeks or in our case, a month. And they didn't. They they made it better by me stepping away. That's that's great because, like you said, building that trust makes the company get to that next level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't have done it if I hadn't forced myself away and signed off from real life. <laughs> so without getting into too much detail regarding the events themselves, because we'll get to that later, what are some of the points of interest that you booked ahead of time? Because you said you book your flight nine months in advance. Now, do you do the same with some of these events that you're going to go to just because then it forces you to still go? Or do you wait until you get there? You know, most of our trips up until the trip we're talking about, the trip to France, have been very, very, very structured, very mapped out. All the tours were ahead of time. Um, But this one was a little bit different. I didn't want to overstructure it, and I can't actually put my finger on why. So with this one, and with all of them, we obviously booked the plane flights way in advance. We also, that my very next step is to book all of my Airbnbs or my hotels, um, because that's part of mapping out our route. My next step after that is usually to figure out the transportation from place to place, which we tend to book ahead of time. And then the final step is to buy trip insurance because we don't go anywhere without travel insurance. After that, especially with this trip, the only things I booked were that first week in Paris when it was going to be my husband, myself, and my mother-in-law together because this part of this trip was 
um, celebrating her 65th birthday. And I, um, my mother-in-law have a, and I have a good relationship, but we don't, we haven't spent a lot of time together. So I did not want to run the risk of us all just sitting around staring at each other, wondering where to go or negotiating group travel because traveling as more than one or two people, oh my God, it's like herding cats sometimes. And I've been in travel situations before where I just wanted to kill the people I was with. So that period in Paris was very structured. I pre-booked the Eiffel Tower tour. I pre-booked um, a secret jazz club experience and uh, the Van Gogh ex- exhibit. And I think we did one more. Oh, we also pre-booked a Loire Valley trip, but we ended up not being able to do that. So that one got rescheduled. And then the perfume making. So it was only like three days. And I think I booked like five things because I was like, we are not going to be bored. <laughs> the rest of the trip, the only thing I pre-booked was actually the canoe trip in the Dordogne because I wanted, it was just so important to me to do it. So I didn't want to leave anything to chance. But the thing was, if the weather's bad, they'll cancel it on you. So even though I had pre-booked it, I was still the whole time nervous, like, will we get to do it? Everything else we did that was tour related was as I was getting to the next place, I'd get on either TripAdvisor or Airbnb and be like, what's open? What do I want to do? That's actually a really cool way to travel. I'm a very structured traveler. James is more of the free flowing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's nice to see the differences and see the positives and negatives from both. Now, yeah. as the world as the world of travel keeps evolving, we notice more and more people deciding to use Airbnb rather than hotels. Was there is there any specific reason when you travel that you choose Airbnbs over hotels because I looked through your itinerary and almost every stop was an Airbnb. Yeah, if it's the only time we will book a hotel is well, I mean, if there's no Airbnbs as an option, I guess that's one reason. But mostly it's just if we if we're only staying someplace one night, especially if we're going to be arriving at like 8 p.m. and leaving at like 8 a.m., there's no need for me to go through the challenge of checking into an Airbnb because checking into an Airbnb is just not usually as easy as checking into a hotel. There's always a concierge just waiting at the desk for you at a hotel. They're open 24-7. Airbnbs are frequently humans who have the jobs and lives and they don't want to see you showing up at 1 a.m. Um, and frequently they're going to meet you somewhere and there might be a language barrier and they're showing you how to open the lock, you know, so we don't want to do that if it's just one night. But if it's two nights or longer, and especially three nights or longer, it is always Airbnb for us or some version of that because you asked if there's a specific reason. Yeah, for sure. Number one, I, I really hate the feeling of being in a hotel where all I have is my bed and like four feet of extra space. You know, we're traveling for almost a month and that's not enough space for my husband and I, especially because he does tend to do some work. He'll set the schedule during our trips. So he needs the little desk space. I, you know, we need a little bit of room. So Airbnbs almost always give us like a living room and a kitchen and a bedroom. Number two, I really want my adventure to start the moment I open my eyes. As an interior designer, my spaces really affect how I feel. And so by waking up to a house that's decorated like the way people live in that region, I wake up and instantly say, I'm in France, Italy, or I'm in Spain. And I love that. Whereas in a hotel, you could be in Singapore or in Washington, D.C., and the hotel looks exactly the same unless you're spending for a boutique hotel, which is much, much more expensive. So I'd love on my adventure to open when I 
the start when I open my eyes, um, I want room. Number three, it tends to be less expensive. Not only do we get more for our money in terms of space, um, but frequently they just literally are less money than the local hotels. And we can cook our own meals, which saves us money on all the eating out. So we can spend more on fancier or more memorable meals and not have to eat all of the meals out. And last but not least, it's literally healthier because eating a month worth of restaurant meals is, um, it makes you fluffy and I don't want to come home fluffy. <laughs> so we can have some salads and some cereal and milk and yogurt or whatever and, and not be eating so many restaurant calories. So that was like five reasons. And I probably have more. I love it. I love that way of traveling. I agree. And that's one of the reasons I think most people tend to pick Airbnb now. You don't get that generic hotel feel. You mentioned something that piqued my interest very quickly, something that no one on our podcast has actually ever mentioned, uh, travel insurance. Do you want to touch on why you use that and why it's so important? Well, it came from a life lesson that I learned from my mom. My mom, I come from a traveling world. So I grew up in the military. We moved a lot. And then when I was in my teens, my mom, my parents are, are divorced. My mom and my stepdad lived on a boat for three years in the South Pacific, and they have traveled all over the world. You know, so I, I come from this. And so one of the trips that she took was with my stepdad to Egypt, and it was a very well-planned trip. It was supposed to be several, like I think several weeks long, and they got to Egypt. And I don't know what we don't, we don't know what they got, but they got very sick. So they did get to see the pyramids and the Sphinx, and then they were so sick that they were then wheelchaired to their plane to take them home like two days into the trip and they did not have trip insurance. So this very expensive pre-booked tour filled trip, I don't know how much money it was, but we're probably talking like $10,000 or something just that hurts to hear, right? Yeah, All that money was just lost. So I learned my lesson without having to learn the lesson myself. Yay. And we just, I mean, it's, you know, it's a couple hundred dollars. I think it's maybe for these long trips we take, two or three hundred dollars. It's not that much money relative to the risk you're taking. It's just like any kind of insurance. You hope you will never, you hope you waste that money. You hope that you will spend that several hundred dollars and never have to post a claim. You want it wasted because if you don't have to waste it, you are going to be so glad, just like with medical insurance or flood insurance, that you had it. That's a great point. And before I turn you over here to James to start talking about Paris. Was this Damien's mom's first time in Paris? Yes, this was his mom's first trip to Paris, which is part of why we did the Eiffel Tower again and did so many of those iconic things. They were there about three days ahead of me. So he, they went to the Louvre together and the Musée d'Orsay and all of those places too. Perfect. In this segment of the podcast, Rebecca will tell us about her experience at the Eiffel Tower. We've done a couple episodes on Paris with a French teacher who's very close friends, and no two trips are ever really alike. So in repeating this city, we can get a totally different view, and especially because you are doing a lot of the major touristy things. So for our listeners who are wondering why we're hopping back into Paris so quickly into our podcast that's why no two trips to the eiffel tower i'm sure are the alike and so we will touch on that and then 
pretty much everything else is unique from our last episode. You guys had a tour for three of the Eiffel Tower. Was this a private tour for just the three of you? I knew you were going to ask me that, and I'm trying to remember because it feels like it was, but I'm quite sure that it wasn't because we are not the kind of people who pay for private tours. But what we are is the kind of people who stay right next to the tour guide. In fact, okay, I'm thinking back now. No, it was not a private tour because we, we took a big old group photo and there's like 20 of us. But I stay right next to my tour guides and I am asking them questions the whole time. So it gives me the the information and the personalization of a private tour without the price tag. There you go. Now, this is not your first time to the Eiffel Tower. Do you still have all of those questions like ready to go to ask when you're there for a second time? Oh, I love that question. So no, we, um, because we are thinking, gosh, could we live here? What would it be like to live here? We were actually in moments when he wasn't addressing the whole group, we were talking much more about what is it like to live in Paris? Where are you from? He was an immigrant himself and he was doing these tours as part of going to law school. Like we learned a lot about our tour guide. And so that actually made the tour much richer because we're learning about this local, even though he's technically supposed to be telling us about the, the Eiffel Tower. And then, of course, you always get new tidbits from every tour guide. So we're learning about the Eiffel Tower and its history differently than whoever our tour guide would, would have been the first time. But if it's my first time touring with somebody, I will tend to ask them, like, where are you from? How long have you been doing this? I love finding that stuff out as part of the story. Awesome. So it wasn't a personalized tour, but it, you always sort of get that experience and feel like it is. And... It's great, I think, that you asked your tour guides questions because a lot of people don't, especially when they're in a group, they feel embarrassed to ask questions yeah. or, or they don't want to be, quote unquote, that guy that is asking questions when the tour could be moving on. And mm -hmm. it's a shame because that's what they're there for. They're really there for you to get some information from them. So, yeah. And even when I'm teaching a class, I always remind people, I'm like, ask your question, because if you have it, somebody else probably has the same question and they're too, they're afraid to speak up. So do it on behalf of other people. <laughs> yeah. You're preaching to the choir here with that one that, uh, as a teacher. <laughs> yes. I've, I've definitely used that line once or twice myself. But anyway, back to the Eiffel Tower. Did you guys use any kind of like skip the line ticket or was the line long to get into the tower? Yeah. The line was long. There was one of the legs. There's, there's different legs that you can go up on the tower. And one of them or two of them were closed. That made the line at the one we were at even longer. But my husband and I are, are no stranger to lines. We tend to like playing word games when we're standing on the line. So, for example, we'll say um, we're going to go through the alphabet, A through Z, and we have to come up with words that remind us of Paris. Like, it'll just be something stupid and super random. And then I'll just say you know, the first thing that comes to my mind, and he'll do the same thing. We just do a little round robin. And it's a silly, simple way to pass the time that makes lines go really, really fast. That sounds like a great way to kill the line time. Exactly. Awesome. So did you guys walk up the stairs? We did. And I was so proud of my mother-in-law, because like I said, this was for her 65th birthday. And she totally did it. I couldn't believe it. It was great. Was she huffing and puffing just for some of our older listeners? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. She she is a very normal human, but she's got grit. Excellent. So the Eiffel Tower has three different levels to it. Did you stop and get to experience all three of these levels? No, we pretty much just said we want to go all the way. We want the very best. So we went all the way to the top and it was extraordinarily windy and cold. <laughs> and then we I, can't, I think 
we must have had to walk down a little bit because then we had the sham we've overpaid for the champagne that you can get and we had some macaron that were i would say they were fine but i would call them tourist grade as opposed to some of the really delicious ones we got in the main city which is to be expected you know you're at a tourist attraction you're not going to get usually the highest quality of anything but it's the overall experience that comes together and i'm super glad we spent the money now you mentioned how you can go up all four of the legs do you know is there a different experience going up the different legs other than who your tour guide is no, my impression is that it's completely the same aside from, as you say, the tour guide. What was interesting about it is I'm pretty sure that it was closed because of a strike. I mean, for anybody who's thinking of traveling to France, strikes are a real thing. They will be happening while you're there. We didn't get delayed. I think there was a, a traffic stop somewhere on our way to Lyon where we ended up being stopped at a bridge for maybe an extra 45 minutes. But we were really lucky. None of our metros were shut down or anything. But yes, the leg of that the, the leg of the tower was, I don't know why one part would be closed for a strike and another one wouldn't, but that's why it was closed. All right. Good to know. So you get to the top, you have your champagne and what is Anne? That's your mother-in-law. What is mm -hmm. Anne's experience? Because you've been there before. So what was it like seeing a first timer up there? It's so wonderful to travel with somebody who is new to anything. I think this is one of the reasons people enjoy having children. You get to see the whole world through new eyes. And so it does make it new for you as well. And, you know, for Anne, it was both the adventure of seeing these things, but also the joy of getting to do it with her son and daughter-in-law, the memories that you're making. So it's not just the where you are, but the who you're sharing it with. And that definitely elevated the experience for her and for us, because it is, you're like, these are, these are bucket list things. And when you get to achieve a bucket list moment, it's just, it feels good. I 100% agree with that. On your way down and you're leaving the Eiffel Tower, we heard in our last experience that they ran into a lot of illegal street vendors. Is that something that you ran into? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, this is true in every single European city we've been to. And I mean, to me, they actually add to the color and texture of the experience. I find it so fascinating that you have all of these mostly immigrants. I don't know which country they're mostly coming from, and I'm guessing it's probably dependent on which country you're in. And they're just scraping to make a living, you know, and they it is amazing because when when the you know, they're not it is illegal. And so when security comes through or the cops come through, they have systems where, you know, if they've got this tarp out. And the, the four corners of the tarp, they have ropes attached to it, and they can bundle up this whole display of plastic Eiffel Towers and be on their way in like half a second. It's like a magic trick. But I never felt accosted or like they were in my way. They weren't a nuisance. They were just people trying to make a living. Um, and I'll tell you what, on the days when you have a surprise rainstorm and they all suddenly whip out their magic bag of umbrellas or ponchos, they can be very convenient, too. Now, just out of curiosity, you're are you in Seattle? Or you're just on the West Coast and kind of close to Seattle. I'm in Seattle. I'm oh, about okay. five miles north of downtown. OK. Are there a lot of vendors like that and stuff in Seattle? No. I mean, when my husband first moved here from Jersey, he he really loves I think it's the Sabrettes hot dogs, if I'm remembering mm -hmm. that right. And he, when he came here, he's realizing there's no, there are no Sabrettes vendors. And he's like, I should start a hot dog stand. And he looked into it and the permitting around here, you, you know, you have to pick your corner and you're not allowed to move. And it's just so much, there's so much more red tape and bureaucracy in the States 
it's all so much more regulated, like having food trucks and all these things. So, no. Okay. I imagine. I mean, my experience in New York, I mean, I don't think most of those people have gone through all of the bureaucratic red tape to get fake Louis Vuitton bags and stuff like that. Definitely the the sabret hot dog vendors and stuff like that. I'm sure they have. But, you know, the fake purses and the yeah. it sounds a lot like that as far as what we're talking about here. Yeah. Thinking back to when I was in New York, I would say it definitely has that more European vibe in that regard. But no, not in Seattle. I wouldn't describe it that way at all. Okay, good to know. In this segment of the podcast, we'll talk about an Airbnb experience where Rebecca got to make her own perfume. And then Rebecca will do her best to describe an immersive Van Gogh exhibit. So I'm going to turn you over to Aaron so that you guys can talk about an Airbnb experience that you guys did over there, which was never anything that I had looked into when I was traveling. And the first time I started looking into Airbnb experiences was actually during COVID so that we could sort of get that travel bug itched. So you're continuing your little tour here through Paris. And as James said before, when we started this podcast, during the beginning of COVID, we promoted a lot of online experiences through Airbnb. And we actually participated in a couple ourselves. But here, you've actually participated in an in-person Airbnb experience, uh, making perfume in Paris. So (laughs) can you tell me a little bit about that and how you found it? Yeah. So I was looking for things that I thought my mother-in-law would enjoy um, because my husband and I would definitely be doing food things. Like I wanted to go learn how to make cheese or taste cheese or something. And and I gave her a couple options and she chose the perfume. So I'm like, okay, we're in for the perfume. And it turns out, I mean, you think about France, it's fashion and beauty. So there's actually, there were quite a few perfume making opportunities. Some of them were at some of the big perfume houses. um, And then Some of them were more like independent creators. So during my first trip to Paris, we did one of those champagne tours at one of the champagne houses, which was wonderful and I enjoyed it. But it always feels a little bit like they're trying to sell you their champagne, right? So I really wanted this experience to not feel like we were then kind of feeling stuck, like we needed to buy these very expensive French perfumes. And I just prefer smaller experiences. So I chose the experience specifically to find one that was going to be more in somebody's home or in their studio or something. So the one we ended up choosing, and you don't know that much going into it, so you just hope it's going to be good. But the one we ended up choosing was, I guess, in the financial district of Paris, where all the big buildings are and the and the very modern Arc de Triomphe. It's kind of like on the other side of Paris from the fancy old Arc de Triomphe. And we, so we got on the metro because we usually walk everywhere when we travel. We, unless we're driving to the next destination, we love to walk. Um, but this was a little far. And of course we had my mother-in-law with us. We didn't want to totally tax her. So we took the metro and we got off and then it was just a big condominium building. So you're just getting buzzed into somebody's apartment. You know, you assume that you're fine. It's a nice, it's a beautiful building. And she buzzed us in. Um, she was really good about communicating with people on the Airbnb app ahead of time. So like a couple of people were running late and they were able to just say, hey, we're running late or, you know, we're having some trouble finding you. And she was really communicative. So that helped with the process of finding her and getting in. Then we went into her home. It's like a one bedroom apartment up on, let's call it the, I don't know, 10th or 11th floor, kind of high up, but not 
not the rich people penthouse places. Uh, great view back towards Paris. So that was cool. And then she had all her tables set up in her main living room area. There were the three of us plus, I think, or four other people plus the instructor. And she makes perfume for a living. She actually had made a perfume that won a fancy award. Um, so she started out by just telling us about perfume making, how she became a perfume maker. She let us smell some of her perfumes. And then laid out on the table are all of these little eyedropper bottles. And each one of them has a scent in it. So like one might be clove, one might be cinnamon, one might be apple, one might be jasmine. And there must have been 50 of them. And I think she had us fill out a survey so she could help us identify the kinds of scents we're drawn to. And then it's just a little science experiment. You just decide, you smell as you go, and you put little droppers in your bottle, and you're allowed to have so many drops total because you need the carrier fluid as well, I guess. And she's guiding the experience. Um, And then you have have a perfume, which either smells really great or so so (laughs) I didn't really love the one I created um but both my husband and my mother-in-law really enjoyed theirs and they they brought theirs back and have been literally using it ever since I think Anne just ran out of hers so it's the souvenir that kind of keeps giving and every time she puts it on it reminds her of the experience and it reminds her of Paris and it's such an interactive souvenir so we not only got the experience of making it but then we all got the experience of enjoying it for literally almost two years now. Yeah. I'm sorry. That was bad math. It's been one year. I'm an interior designer. Don't ask me math. <laughs> <laughs> you answered my next question, which was, did you get to keep the perfume you made? And then you made a fantastic point about the, a lot of people spend money on souvenirs. They want to get somebody something. This is something that you have made in a foreign country, a foreign yep. city, and you get to keep, and it's it almost doubles as, like you said, a memory and a souvenir all in one, which is amazing. Exactly. Exactly. Now, how how long did you end up staying at this experience for? I feel like we're probably there about three hours. Okay, that's cool. I have to tell you, I love this because I just like the idea that you've gone off the beaten path and not doing the normal touristy stuff and this is stuff that closely relates to Paris and you're still getting that Parisian lifestyle while you're doing this experience which is amazing yeah we've done this kind of thing many times now and they aren't all spectacular experiences some tours are duds but that has nothing to do with Airbnb experiences it has nothing to do with the the proprietor you know sometimes you just get a dud experience that happens. And really, it comes down, I think, to the tour guide. Yeah, so much hinges on having a good tour guide, but also understanding you're getting to know yourself as a traveler. We're very different travelers now than we were when we took our first trip together. You know, Damien always thought that he was a room service and hotel kind of a person. And he has come to really love the experience of Airbnbs and the money saving aspects. So we can do a lot more traveling for our money as a result. Um, but, you know, there's still a part of them who occasionally just wants some good old room service breakfast. So we try and mix that in, too. So knowing, you know, like I know that I I need to go to the cities because that's where a lot of the attractions are, the iconic attractions. But I know that we need to spend most of our time in small villages and that I must have some tours 
or, t- or times that are nature focused or I will lose my mind. So I didn't know all of that about myself when I was a new traveler and I've come to understand it. So with each trip, I, and I think that's probably why I was able to be more laissez-faire with this trip and not book so much ahead of time because I'd travel enough times in this mode that I felt comfortable that I'd find what I need as I got there. I never could have gone so unstructured in my first couple of trips. You actually bring up a fantastic point. Again, just the evolution of a single person or a pair of people and the way they travel and how it changes over time and, and how you kind of find yourself as you're taking these destination trips and really figure out kind of who you are. Yep, exactly. And what will work for you? The way I travel wouldn't be a fit for a lot of people. Um, and it would, could make them miserable. So that would be silly. So your next experience was with Van Gogh. And I'm actually going to let James talk about this because James's favorite art piece of artwork ever, as far as I'm concerned, and I've known him for a very long time, is Starry Night. So I'm going to let him discuss this uh, Van Gogh exhibit with you so he can enjoy it. It's pretty cliche, and by no means do I look at a lot of art in that. Like, I'm not uh, an art connoisseur or anything like that. So yeah, it's pretty cliche, but I do enjoy Starry Night. And this immersive Van Gogh exhibit, the, the website you gave us, just going and looking that, this thing, this is awesome. It is, I, I'm going to let you try and describe it maybe to our, our listeners because okay. you were obviously there, but I, it's it's awesome. Um, so I can't, I wish I knew who to give credit to for telling about it because somebody somewhere could have been one of my clients. You know, I don't know. Somebody told me to go to this and I'm like, cool. Um, I, and I'm going to probably butcher the French, but it's called something like the Atelier de Lumière or Lumière, which means the studio of light or again, something very similar to that. <laughs> and what it's warehouse and the art in this case of Van Gogh is projected on all the walls, ceilings and floor of this warehouse, the walls behind you, the staircases, like it's all being projected on these surfaces and it's set to music. I think my understanding was that the music was paired on purpose. It did feel scored. It felt like you, the way a, a movie score tells half of the story. It felt like the music was as much of the story as the light show it was itself. And then the way they're projecting it makes it feel like the haystacks are moving, like the sun is dappling, the sunflowers are moving. Like it wasn't just a flat, steady screen. It's moving around you and shifting and morphing. It's hard to describe without being there. Suffice to say that it does immerse you in it. And I had as much fun looking around at the art and and experiencing the music as I did watching other people experiencing it, you know, and they're just transfixed by what they're seeing. I don't know what else to say about it other than it was marvelous. I will say if somebody had to pick between seeing a Van Gogh in person and seeing the light show, I would definitely say see it in person because the thing that is so striking about Van Gogh when you see your first one, having seen it on how many t-shirts and prints, right? It's practically sculpture. The paint on his paintings is so thick that it is like a sculpture. And so seeing it in person, it has this texture that you don't even have a clue about when you're seeing a a print of it. So that is something to experience all in and of itself. I understand that 
the paint is so thick on some of them that in some of them, the paint isn't even dry in his artwork after all these years. It's crazy. But once you've gotten to see at least one real Van Gogh, this is very, very cool art exhibit. I think you did a fantastic job describing that. I mean, it just sounds like you become part of one of Van Gogh's paintings. And yeah, that's just... Especially the room paintings. You know his room where he has his bed and it's like mm-hmm. a painting of his room yeah. that's really weird? Those ones especially for me. I was like, I am in this room. It was so cool. Yeah. And I think we're going to post this link along with this episode just so you can see what we're talking about. Because looking through the website, I'm like, wow, this is so cool. So I can't even imagine what it's like to have actually been there. Yeah. But it sounds like you sort of answered my next question. You would recommend seeing some of these paintings in real life over actually seeing this even though it was such a incredible experience or do you think just once you've seen one van gogh you could go experience this and it it would be more effective yes now if somebody happens to just be in paris and this exhibit's available and they haven't yet seen their first van gogh oh my gosh go anyway like don't don't not go But if you had to choose between them or if you were going in series, I would go see in real life the Van Gogh painting and then I would do the immersive experience. And that's probably true. I think I would have the same answer no matter whose artwork it was. But because Van Gogh's is so sculpturally painted, it feels especially true for his work. So I'm assuming you've been to the Louvre? I have, yes. Not on this trip, but on the trip prior. Right. Was it pretty chaotic? I don't remember it being chaotic, but it's massive. And the mistake people make is they're like, I'm going to go see the Louvre. Well, you can't. That's impossible. Like, it's too big. So with anything that big, I think it's important to have some kind of strategy, whether that's a guided tour of the highlights or you just pick a wing that you're going to be focusing on. Because otherwise, you're just going to wear yourself out trying to see too much and you're going to not enjoy any of it. The Van Gogh, in comparison to the, the Louvre. This is much more condensed, but was it equally crowded? I would say actually that, yeah, because there were there were lots and lots and lots of people in this warehouse. But because the warehouse has so much volume and because you're you can look anywhere and see the exhibit, you're not trying to look around people's heads to see the exhibit. It doesn't feel crowded at all. We were also there a little bit off season. You know, we were there starting October and going forward. So there were simply fewer crowds in Paris at all anyway. Awesome. In this segment of the podcast, we're going to talk to Rebecca about another Airbnb experience she took advantage of where she headed to an exclusive secret jazz club. Okay, so another Airbnb experience. So this is pretty popular with you. And I think a lot of people use Viator. Like you said, a lot of people use... uh, Expedia or whatever else they can use. And Airbnb is slowly creeping up with, you know, popularity. So do you want to tell us a little bit about this quote secret unquote jazz club? Sure. First, a non-official shout out to Airbnb. Part of why I ended up using them instead of TripAdvisor, which was my kind of my go-to before. It wasn't TripAdvisor. I can't even remember. That's horrible. But the app is so easy to use. And, you know, I work so hard in my day-to-day life. I don't need things to be hard. So if somebody offers me a tool that is easy for communicating with my hosts and for booking and, and like, it'll immediately say, you're in this area, here are the, 
experiences that literally actually apply to you and the dates that you're going there, like it's doing a lot of self-filtering. That's why Airbnb became one of my go-tos, especially for this trip. So it's not that I have any particular love for Airbnb. They made it easy. So the Secret Jazz Club, again, this was during the week in Paris before we started our big road trip. Uh, it's when my mother-in-law was there. I'm like, we're going to have so much to do. I love dressing up. So I wanted an opportunity for us to dress up. I like, I would love female jazz singers, So, was, but I didn't know who would be singing. So that was sort of out of my control. And then just the word secret just makes it sound so speakeasy-like, you know, and big fan of whiskey and burlesque. So it was just so up my alley. So this one was definitely for me more than it was for my husband or my mother-in-law. But you don't ever know what to expect. There was some, I, I wouldn't call it confusion. My, hus my husband wasn't convinced we were in the right place for the, the host to find us. Because you're just literally standing, for this one, you're standing on a street corner by a bookstore waiting for your host to find you and that they're going to show you where you're going. But it worked out and I was confident. I had my app. <laughs> so <laughs> they took us to the door that leads you into the building that was built in some century. And again, they told us all kinds of facts that I don't remember now, um, but it was fancy for some reasons. Um, and then you're inside and it's this, this beautiful, I mean, the inside space really is beautiful. These were, these are the apartments where people live and definitely used to live. And we're talking the wealthy people. It's right off of the, the big Central Park area. And it has a balcony, a very small catwalk balcony. But that is a, that is something you pay up for in Paris. So it's very beautiful. Old parquet floors, all of the old kind of cake frosting trim work around the ceilings and around the fireplace and everything. So you can feel the history. But it was definitely set up as a a members only club. There was a whole bar set up in one area. Who knows? It used to be the kitchen for all I know. Actually, there was, there was still a kitchen because they served food as well. And then there was just this little area in the front, call it the front, I guess, uh, where the band was playing and then tables that were just crammed in on top of each other. So we were, um, we chose a little booth area and listened to the music. The best part of this night was they had um, whoever their person who was supposed to be playing was playing. But then I guess when fancy jazz people show up, they will invite them up to the stage and say, would you like to do a performance? And so that night there was a woman um, named Sasha Boutros there. She's American. She lives down in, I think, San Diego. And she sang a jazz song and just knocked my socks off like that girl's pipes. And so she's saying whatever she's saying. And she went back to her table. And at that table, like you could just tell that these were, these were beautiful people. You know, they were just clothes, the lipstick, the hat. They had, you know, just felt like they were true Parisians, even though she was American. And so I actually decided I needed to be friends with them, which didn't work out. I didn't get to be friends with Sasha because she's fancier than me right now. Someday I need to be that fancy. But I made friends with her friend, Becky, and we've become Instagram friends as a result. And so I was able to collect a friend out of this experience. And I love doing that. It's so much fun. That sounds like a fantastic time. Honestly, you know, part of travel, as you said, is meeting new people, getting immersed in the culture. And sometimes you end up actually meeting someone you may be friends with for a long time, maybe for the rest of your life. So that's really cool that you got to experience that. And it sounds like you're a big jazz fan, or at least a music lover in general. You said this was more for you than your mother-in-law or your husband. 
How did they end up liking the experience? Well, my husband is game for everything. I met him through ballroom dancing when I was a teacher. And, you know, so he's he's the kind of person who isn't afraid to dress up, isn't afraid to try new things, because he did that on his own. He went and took lessons by himself. And then in the years since, since we obviously then started dating and then got married, he's willing to go to whatever costume parties I want to go to. Like, he's just so easygoing. So he had a great time. And then Anne, same thing. Basically, she was like, I'll do whatever you want to do. I'm going to Paris for my birthday. Like, I'm just game. I don't want to diminish how uncomfortable it is, too. Even though I had my app and I felt confident that we were on the right street corner, all of these interactions are exhausting because you don't exactly know the rules and you don't know if what you've just signed up your mother-in-law and your husband for is going to be a dud. And so there is a lot of anxiety that goes with this. There's a lot of trepidation and worry. But the re- the reward is bigger than the worry. And more often than not, it's a good experience. And even if it's a dud experience, something good came out of it, even if it's just figuring out what kind of traveler you are so you don't book that kind of a thing next time. I think we've all planned something here before on a trip. And when you're the one who picks it, you're crossing your fingers so much that everyone enjoys it because you're like, oh, please, 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 I need this to work. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I will say I've been in charge of most of the planning for most of our trips. But when we two years ago were in, um, I think it's when we were in Scotland, which is one of my favorite places on earth, I did break down and I started crying. And I was just like, I need you, Damien, my husband, to be the one worried about if all this is going to work out next time. Like, I just can't be in charge of it every single time. And he, oh, God bless him. The man took that ball and he ran with it. And he planned us <laughs> this epic trip to Norway and Sweden. And it was, I will say, so nice to not be the one who was worried the whole time. And he felt it. He really appreciates the planning that I now put into the trips because he's like, yeah, I was worried the whole time that you were not going to enjoy the dog sledding and the, oh, oh my God, it was a great trip. He did good. He did good. That sounds like a lot of fun as well. Norway and Sweden. Oh, yeah. Especially if you're sleep deprived, go to Norway in the winter. You will get the best naps. How long did you stay at the jazz club? Is there a certain amount that you can stay for? Can you stay as long as you want? Do they eventually just kick you out? How does that work? This one, I, okay, so we were with our host. Our host was the member. Um, And it was a small group experience. So there were like three other guests and us three and the host. And we were all gathered around this tiny little bistro table, all crowded in amongst all these other members and guests. It just felt like going out to dinner with your friends. You know, it just kind of ended very organically. I think there probably was a duration listed on the Airbnb experience because I think it'd be weird to go into something open ended. But it didn't feel rushed. It didn't feel too long. There was a little bit of chaos at the beginning when we're trying to just get oriented, like, how do we order drinks? Do we sit here? Do we go over to the bar? Uh, Especially because it was so physically crowded. But after, once we got situated, it just felt like the same way a dinner would wrap up with friends. It was maybe two or three hours. That's a a perfectly good experience time. I feel like two or three hours, really immerse yourself in it and then be able to go home and or do whatever's next on the agenda. And it is important to remember that people in Europe, in our experience, do take things slower. They are not going to rush through their drinks or their food. So you don't, don't go with an agenda of, of being too packed because you'll, you may very well miss out on some of the joy that comes from just taking your time. You know, people say 
that French waiter, waiters are rude, but really they're just trying to give you your space to enjoy your meal. If you need them, flag them up down. They'll come right over, but they're going to leave you alone for hours. And that's not, they're not being rude. Yeah, and you make a great point because I think a lot of people have this misconception in the United States that French people are rude, but I got to tell you, when I was in Paris, I did not feel that at all. No, but I do think that there are some important things that one can do to make sure they don't need to be rude to you. We read, um, so once we were on the road trip part of this, which I, I know we'll get to, we listened to a book on tape called The Bonjour Effect. And um, it's a book about basically good French living etiquette. And the simplest thing is when you walk into any French place, and I'm talking anything from a restaurant to the police station, say bonjour, say hello, do not dive into my house is on fire and my baby's about to die. Say <laughs> bonjour, my house is on fire and my baby's about to die. They, and I, the reason I say that is because the person reading that book, The Bonjour Effect, literally had something like that happen. It wasn't that dramatic, but she was looking for help from somebody. And like a normal um, American person, she went in and she just started asking for help. And they were just like, they were so put off. So if you're feeling that vibe, it's because they're like, French shop shopkeepers are not your servants. In America, these people are here to serve us. They're here to give us a wonderful experience. In France, they are your equal. This is my shop. You have come into my shop. I expect you to say hello to me before you start demanding things of me. And then when you leave the shop, I expect you to say goodbye like a human. And when you think about it, this is a really low bar. But if you haven't taken that moment to understand the culture of that and to just get over the fear of letting French words come out of your mouth because you know you're butchering them, and you just say bonjour when you go in and you say au revoir when you leave, you will get better service. I 100% guarantee it. In our final segment of the podcast, we'll talk to Rebecca about her experience at a three-star restaurant with Chef Guy. All right. So you guys want to celebrate Anne's 65th birthday. That's part of what this whole trip is. And so you guys decide to do dinner. And you go to a three-star Michelin restaurant. I'm going to pronounce it how I looked up these French words are supposed to be pronounced. And I don't <laughs> know if this is true, but I'm going for it. Uh, Guy Savoie. Is that right? That is my understanding. I know Guy is right because it took us a long time to stop saying Guy. So for <laughs> listeners, it looks like Guy Savoy. It looks like Guy Savoy, but it is not that. <laughs> it, is, it is the French version of that, which is Guy. And then I think, as you said, Savoir, but don't quote me on that. So now you had asked me earlier what I pre-planned, and I, I did pre-plan this dinner because you can't just walk in off the street and go to a three-star Michelin restaurant usually. Um, and actually, it started back in Seattle. So we have a favorite, favorite Indian restaurant here in Seattle, and we are regulars to the point where my husband walks in and I greet him by name. Um, so there you go. Nice. Um, so, and we usually eat at the bar and we have two favorite bartenders and we tend to share conversations. It turns out that this bartender is, his family is French and his family is personal friends with this chef, Guy Savoy. And so we're like, and then the other part to the story that you should know is my husband 
has a dream. The reason I keep mentioning we're going to try and move to Paris is he has a dream of retiring and then going and studying at the Cordon Bleu. And so food, we love food. We love to experience food. We love to eat food. He loves to cook food and wants studies. So all of that combined with the fact that we want to do something special for Anne's 65th birthday. And we had this personal possibility of having a personal invite to this three-star Michelin restaurant, which by the way, does not save you any money. It just gets you in the door. Um, made us go, well, this is a ridiculous amount of money to spend and we're going to do it anyway. So we made the reservations and I packed accordingly. So that definitely added quite a bit to all of our luggage because you do not go to a three-star Michelin restaurant in France dressed inappropriately, in my opinion. Um, and that's how it started. Now, I have written a lot of different possibilities here. And I'm at a loss. The biggest number I came up with was possibly six. This was a 13-course meal. I'm missing about seven courses. And that's being loose, calling bread a course. And I don't actually think we even had any bread come, come to think of it. Educate my uh, American palate on what 13 courses actually looks like. Sure. And I will say that we have pictures of every single course, and they are beautiful because I was revisiting those pictures in anticipation of this conversation. What this was, it's, I think the title of it was like textures, flavors, and colors in French. They said it in French, obviously. But it was, it's a, it's a tasting menu. It is meant to be the chef's best presented to you as art. So you have to, one thing to know is these are very small courses, right? Maybe like some of them are literally one bite and then some of them might be eight bites, like the, the main courses. So that's the first thing to know is it's not 13 meals, it's 13 courses, some of which are one bite. And then um, it definitely has a flow from like what they call a mousse-bouche, amuse the mouths. And little appetizers all the way through things that feel more like salads and entrees and then soups and then finishing with some cheeses and some dessert. And when you think about the, the palate that the French work with when it comes to food, there, you could have had 23 courses when you think of it as this spread of colors and textures and flavors. So that's my best description. Excellent. That lays it out perfectly. So I guess you're saying... 13 courses, some of them were one bite, some of them were up to maybe around as many as eight bites. Mm -hmm. Did you feel satisfied leaving, like you had eaten enough? Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, we were stuffed. We also drank, I think we ordered two full bottles of wine, one bottle of dessert wine, and had our aperitif drinks. Um, we were plenty satisfied. We were also not driving home at the end of that either. So Uber? taxi but yes okay. yeah we, and we do use uber a lot when we travel but i'm pretty sure that night was a, a proper taxi okay <laughs> so you definitely don't have to go through every course by the way you said that you have pictures of everything i just want people to realize 13 courses i couldn't even post all 13 on one single instagram post because they kept me at 10 pictures that's right so i couldn't post every picture on one <laughs> instagram post so do you recall what they all were was anything there new to you or had you tried pretty much all of it before? It was just Michelin star level now. 
I don't think there were any foods that I'd never encountered, but there were some foods that I'd only encountered in similar situations. So like there were, there was oysters as part of this meal, but my first time with that was in the, in the south of Italy on a, on a previous trip. And there was like liver, but I also went to kindergarten in Germany. So I definitely had seen my fair share of liver, liver worst, et cetera. So there were no new foods. But there were certainly foods that I don't seek out, like oysters. And so it's always interesting to try something that really is top shelf, right? The best of the best. And then that way, that way, in that moment, you can really say to yourself, yeah, I'm not an oyster girl, you know, or yeah, because I'm not a lobster girl. Because if Gisavoy makes something and I'm still not like into it, I'm probably legitimately not into it. But what made the food different was in part the the textures and the subtleties of the flavor. Um, it really is an art at this level. And for me, even more so, it's the presentation of it. You're really paying for a show as much as you are a meal. Every single dish was presented. It was its own little show in the in the midst it's like its own little act in the midst of this big play you know and even the when you're when you're let into this restaurant is the first act i mean we were we were greeted by like five people and then led up these stairs and then guided to our table and then of course they put the napkin in your lap but my purse also had its own little stool right next to my chair like it's just such a performance so and I, there, I mean, every food was a performance, but the two that stuck out to me, one was this trick that they do where they will put the food under um, a glass dome and then they fill the glass dome with smoke. So what's coming to you is this fog under glass. And then they lift, they, not you, you don't touch your own food practically. They lift the glass dome off of this fog filled thing. And then the fog pours away. I think it might have been dry ice come to think of it because it really it didn't go up it kind of poured out so cool I honestly don't even remember what was inside the fog I just remember the fog being so cool <laughs> and then the other one was that they brought this I, I love soft boiled eggs in a little egg cup I remember that from when I was a little girl so I love that I never do it for myself but it's a memory so they bring out this what looks like a soft boiled egg in an egg cup and then Again, you don't touch your own food. So they all, they pick up our eggs and they crack the egg open and then they pour out hollandaise sauce. So, which is made from eggs. But what they had done was blown out these eggshells, created a three-star Michelin level hollandaise sauce, and then put that back into the egg and then surprised you with what was inside of this egg. It was so cool. So that's, it's not, like I said, it's not just the flavors and the flavors are ridiculous, but it's the presentation. It's the show. If you're experiencing food in a way that you have to be there. Were there any dancing and singing utensils and stuff like that in this presentation? <laughs> no, but I will say that the reason we chose one of the places on our road trip for when we get to talk about that was because those villages did inspire the Beauty and the Beast villages. Oh, what a teaser. I can't wait for next episode. <laughs> You did mention that this was very expensive. Do you feel comfortable sharing like roughly how much? I do. I do. Because money is something we all get to make 
choices around spending. Some people will spend it on a fifth wheel or an ATV, and some people will spend it on a ridiculous meal. So that was our choice. And for three people with all of the alcohol I mentioned in 13 courses, that was uh, 2,000 euros, which I think is like $2,500. But I can't exactly remember what the exchange is on that. Yeah, okay. But also through the lens of this is 65th birthday for his mother, you know, that's (laughs) that also plays into it and stuff. So it does. I mean, it's it's the equivalent of going to a really great show, like where the tickets are in that three to $700 price tag, which is not unheard of. It's pretty common. And we did, we got the show and we got the food. It just does sound like a lot for a meal. <laughs> but like you said, it's dinner and a show. And that is not an unheard of price for three people to spend. So, on a dinner and a show, exactly. And we were yeah. there. We we must have been there four hours. We got there basically when they opened and we closed them down. And it sounds like this is a memory that's going to last a lifetime for everyone involved. So exactly. at a certain point you hit that, that's that's totally priceless. Exactly. Now you had experienced these foods. I just want to ask quickly, maybe had Anne not experienced some of them? Was this like a first maybe for her? I don't know. And none of us were sitting there going, oh, I don't know if I can eat this thing. So I don't know if that's just that she's as adventurous in eating things as Damien and I are. I'd say it might be partly that, but it's also just the fact that the food was amazing. Like when you think about weird things people could eat, grasshoppers and tongue, you know, a lot of things you get in some of the Asian countries. They're only weird because they're unfamiliar. People aren't eating things because they think they're gross. People actually do like what they're eating. So, so much of it is a mental game. And in this case, the food was so beautifully presented, so wonderfully cooked, except for one exception. And I will say this in a second. I'll tell you the exception. But that there there was no, not like you were handed a, a bunch of grasshoppers on a stick. There wasn't that visceral, oh, I don't know if I can do this. That's not what this kind of a food experience was. So what was the thing that I think they didn't? do well. I am totally going to be a Seattle snob about this. So they cooked, quote unquote, beautiful salmon. And you can't, you know, Seattle, Seattle and Alaska are the salmon capital of the world. You don't mess with salmon. You don't put weird sauces on salmon. You just eat salmon because, I mean, it's, it's like the perfect sashimi food. You don't even have to cook it. So they took their salmon and they cooked it on dry ice, which I suppose technically does do the same thing. You're turning the proteins into a cooked protein. But to me, it just tasted like freezer burned salmon, which felt like an insult to all salmon. So, Gee, if you're listening, you are still amazing. But I would rethink the salmon. (laughs) Listen, one out of 13 courses, that's a 92%. So that's pretty good. It's pretty good. And like I said, I'm a salmon snob, so you got to take it for what it's worth. If he touches up that salmon, maybe we're talking four-star Michelin. Oh, I'll give it. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rebecca, this is the end of Paris for you, and the rest of your trip is in other parts of France that we haven't visited. We're going to look forward to that, especially that village that the Beauty and the Beast (gasps) was based off of that's not even the most beautiful village just you wait guys this is going to be great experience i can't wait to talk a little bit more about that so thank you so much for joining us your presentation of paris is probably three-star michelin i would have to say (laughs) thank you thank you in that case i'll be sending you a very hefty bill right after we get all right and i will forward that right over to aaron (laughs) (laughs) 
So one thing we like to do is say something that we learned. We do that on every episode, something that we learned. So Aaron, what'd you learn this time? Well, I learned that even though I've been to Paris, we've spoken to someone who went to Paris and has been to Paris multiple times. As you stated before, so many people can go to a similar spot and have such a different experience just based on the different things that are available in these amazing cities. So one thing I learned, well, actually, two, I'm going to give you two things that I learned. I learned that you can have a meal that has 13 courses. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned that Seattle and Alaska are the capital of salmon. Oh, yeah. It's not surprising in thinking about it, but I officially learned that it is. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to speaking with you again. It's been so fun revisiting these memories with you guys, and I look forward to the time when we're all making travel memories again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspire Beyond Borders. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IBBpod for updates and pictures from our guests. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our podcast. 